This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with a foresight of giving me that middle name? Comes in handy sometimes. Welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. This is season uno, episode number nine, the one where I interview Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Let's see, between Dr. Ord and myself, we have written 28 books. He's written 25, I've written three, but still, between the two of us, we've written 28. I think that's incredibly impressive. I'm thankful for Dr. Ord's time today. He's been a great resource for me over the last couple of years. And for lots of us who are on this journey to try to figure out how to read the Bible better and how to infuse our lives with love, Dr. Ord is a professor. He's got his doctorates in something. That's why we call him a doctor. Uh, Like I said, he's an author. He's a best-selling author, an award-winning author. And I'm really grateful for the time we got to spend together today. Check out his info in the show notes, but you can find him at thomasjord.com. And also track down his latest book, which is entitled God Can't. It's a provocative title about a provocative subject matter. This idea that God's love is not controlling. It's an idea that's had major implications upon the way I approach life now. So I'm really thankful for the concept. Before we get to that interview, just a reminder that if you feel so inclined, you are welcome scroll down and hit some stars on this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. And also just a reminder that I have a brand new book out. It's called Questions About Sexuality That Got Me Uninvited from My Denomination. I'm really honored by the way many of you have received it. Dr. Ord endorsed it as well as a few other author theologians. I was very humbled by that. But also many of you have been endorsing it and leaving reviews And I'm telling you, man, some of these reviews have been really, I mean, just really humbling. Uh, Let me just scroll through a few of them. Here's uh, what one person says. They say, we need more brave voices speaking at the intersection of sexuality and faith. I'm thankful for Jonathan's story that makes me feel less alone when how it's always been done doesn't make sense anymore. I thought that was insightful, but I mean, every single one of these, I can't read them all. Let's see, this one says, maybe as more and more churches do what Jonathan has done here and question how to evolve in our faith and show love to everyone, especially marginalized people, the church will become a place we all want to be. I like that. That's true. Every single one of these are great. So thank you for your responses. And um, it's true. The book has done well here in the first week. For a few days, I've been a number one bestseller which is pretty funny. Now, you got to understand something. These are very specific categories. It's like only Kindle and only in certain theological categories. But nevertheless, to be number one for even a few minutes is an unusual thing. So I'm just going to take it and run with it. From now on, I've asked my wife to reference me only as one, not one, but one, (laughs) O-N-E. That's right. I'm just one. 
what I want to do now is set up the interview with Dr. Ord, and it needs setting up because, well, honestly, I didn't do that great of a job interviewing him. First of all, I'm probably not a great interviewer. That's a big reason why. And another reason why, if I can be so vulnerable, is just to tell you that immediately preceding my phone call with Dr. Tom, I got correspondence on my mobile device that led me to realize that some long-term friendships were really suffering because of, well, all of the stuff that I've been through this year with the book and with denominations and questions about the Bible. And it probably doesn't surprise you that a lot of people have taken exception to this. It's just painful when, you know, certain people get angry about it and it's a part of the journey. But unfortunately, as it turned out, I got some communication right before I called Tom that really put me in a tough place emotionally. So I kind of struggled through the interview. Thankfully, he was intelligent as always and gracious and made it work. But I wanted to set one piece up because as I listened to the phone call afterwards, I realized kind of where my brain was going. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the things we talk about to hopefully help you because (laughs) I don't think I did a very good job of connecting the dots. So the one idea I wanted to introduce was this thought of open theism, which has to do with whether God is constrained by our time dimension or if he lives beyond our time dimension. And it has a connection in an indirect way with the whole topic of LGBTQ+, but it's going to take me a minute to get there, so you got to be patient. But I think if you're relatively curious, you will find this interesting. So... If God lives beyond our space-time continuum, many, many people, not just me, but lots of us have said, well, look, there's some explaining he has to do as to why things have unfolded the way that they have, because if he's a loving God and if he could step into time and stop some things, why didn't he? Why didn't he stop the concentration camps? Why didn't he stop the gulag labor camps in the Soviet Union? Uh, What about slavery? Why would loved ones be killed prematurely, etc., etc.? If God had the ability to step into time and to change things, well, why did he not do that? So the typical Western Christian tradition thought is that ultimately we really don't have to worry about all that because God is in control and he's got this big plan and he's pulling levers and he's pushing buttons and he's taking it all somewhere and he's predestined this whole thing because he's God and he's big and he's powerful and it may look like evil to you, but really he can actually use all that bad stuff and he authors all that bad stuff in order to bring about good. Now, A lot of us struggle with this whole approach because it requires God to then intend and to author evil. And there's so many issues with that, not the least of which is, how do you ever connect to a God of love who has intended evil in your life? I mean, if I have intended evil in the life of my child, how does my child respond to me? Well, they're probably going to have problems. Of course, that tradition is the same tradition that goes on to say, well, yes, but that's the whole reason that Jesus came. He came to die for us. But again, I pose the question, how do we ever get close to that kind of God? How do we ever assume he's a loving God? If the only reason my kids can get close to me is because I took my wrath out on another one of my kids, that sets us up for all kinds of problems. No, I don't think God gets to use evil. I don't think God wants to use evil. 
I don't think God is in control in such a way that all calamities and all sin were a part of his purpose and design. I definitely don't think it was God's intention that Hitler would make the choices that he made or that Auschwitz would happen or that the Rwandan genocide would take place. I don't think that was a part of his ultimate design and purpose. I still think God is in the middle of all of it. But I don't think that that was his purpose. And I don't think in any stretch of the imagination it brings glory and honor to say that it does, though I understand why some people have gotten there. That theology has kind of forced them to go there. And it's my observation that a lot of people agree with this, but the problem is they don't really have the language to think this way. So they either get caught up going this whole fundamentalist view that, okay, yeah, God's in control of everything, and so obviously he must have used evil, and he's got some plan, and he can do whatever he wants. Or they go in the complete opposite direction and say, the whole thing is full of so many holes, it's just not believable any longer. And it seems to me from my vantage point that a lot of people are wrestling with this. Now, they may not say it directly. It's just kind of percolating underneath our corporate psyche. But, I mean, take a look at something like um, the movie series, The Avengers. I think The Avengers gives us a bunch of evidence that we're struggling with this whole topic of what kind of God that we serve and what he's capable of doing and whether or not he uses evil to wipe out evil and the kinds of problems that that idea presents. So here comes this typical Christian who believes in, by the way, stories like Noah Think about that iconic story where God told Noah to build a boat because he was going to start the world over through Noah's family. He didn't like what was happening, and so he was going to wipe out humanity and start it over the way he wanted it to be. So that typical Christian walks in, sits down, and watches this movie and is exposed to what? Now, by the way, a little bit of a spoiler alert here. But that moviegoer is exposed to an antagonist by the name of Thanos, Who wants to do what? He wants to wipe out the earth and start it over in the way that he wants to start it over. And so now you have that Christian who believes in the one God watching this movie who's vicariously fighting against this God. And yet this God wants to do the exact same thing as the God in the Bible. The God of the Bible wants to wipe out humanity and start over. And the Thanos God wants to wipe out humanity and start over. We call one good and one bad. Do you see the inconsistency with all of that? Do you see how it breaks down? And it's frustrating us on a very real level, even though a lot of us can't talk about it. Meanwhile, this becomes, I think, the largest grossing movie of all time. Do you think there's a connection as to why? I mean, sure, it's fun to watch the big green guy run around and smash things. But I think there's probably something deeper at play here. And I really don't know how this all worked out, but it seems to me that it's possible. There are a handful of screenwriters and movie producers and directors that are just smirking and saying something like, look at you Christians who can't see the difference between myth and reality and won't even question what you believe. Then again, maybe the screenwriters and the producers, maybe they're not smirking. Maybe they're genuinely hoping that this subversive message will open Christians up to see something better than the tribalistic God that has been handed to all of us. And wouldn't this be ironic? Because in this sense, it would mean that Hollywood would be providing us a truer image of God than Western Christianity.
All right, so I'm fast-forwarding through a bunch of stuff here. But the idea is that the Wesleyan tradition, out of which I come from, it's always given me more room to work with all of this. Namely, it's given me free will, as I already mentioned. And we have said that people have had opportunity to turn their backs on God, and that's exactly what we did. And so because of that, we are the problem. And we've had the room and the freedom to not have to pen it all on God. We'll take the blame. Okay, so that's good as far as it goes. I think it's a step in the right direction. But the more I've considered this, and the more others considered this, we have found this to be lacking in its scope to offer up answers as well. Because if God knew beforehand that all of this was going to happen, all of this pain, and if the stakes were so high, like that some people would be sent to heaven and some to hell, why would he have done it in the first place? Now, granted, in the Wesleyan tradition, we tend to have more of an idea that God can save us from certain kinds of pains. I mean, God is a bit more interactive. He's not so deterministic. And sometimes we believe he does exactly that. And if we pray and ask, then he'll step in and save us. That's the problem, though. Sometimes we have no great answer for why not all of the time. And the question still remains, why did God allow it to happen in the first place? Granted, I'm wrestling with some of the oldest questions in all of humanity, and I'm not doing it in a very intelligent way, but you are hopefully getting the idea. These are very, very heavy things to process. It's a very heavy thing to process that God might be responsible for our pain. Well, I'm to the point where I say it's unconscionable to even process this because I don't think God intends evil or pain or bad things at all. I think he's love. He's not responsible for evil, and he doesn't tempt us. So how is it then that bad things have happened? Well, if I haven't demonstrated enough of my ignorance, let me just continue. Because this is where some people connect this whole idea with time and space and God's mercy and love. And open theism provides something of an answer. By the way, Dr. Tom is an open theist, though I'm pretty sure he's saying it with a bit more detail and eloquence, but the idea is open theism tells us that God doesn't know the future. God only knows what's knowable, and by definition, the future isn't knowable. I'm aware that you've probably entered into this podcast because you want to know how it is that I'm believing certain things that have allowed me to move from a position of being more conservative with my interpretation of homosexuality to being much more progressive to the point where now I'm saying a church doesn't have to do anything. They can welcome everyone, including LGBTQ plus people, into their fold without asking them to change. So you're trying to figure that out. And all of a sudden, you're in the middle of this podcast about space and time and open theism, and you're probably wondering, what does this all have to do with each other? Well, let me try to make the connect, and I recognize it's going to be a little bit oversimplified, and also you may need to have listened to some of the other episodes in this podcast to get caught up on my own story. But it goes something like this. If God is in control, well, he could have, he should have, stepped in and stopped my daughter from dying, but he didn't. And now I have a few choices as to what I think about that. Like, it might be because he doesn't care, which I reject. Or it might be because he uses evil so he can use car wrecks to bring about glory. Well, I already told you I reject that. Or it might be because, well, sometimes he steps in and sometimes he doesn't. Which is fine as far as it goes, except 
I really would like to know why that's the case. Now, the answers that have been provided for me to that question are typically A, well, sometimes he steps in because he saves good people. He saves righteous people, which, of course, left me out because apparently I wasn't righteous enough for him to save me and my family and to save my daughter. Or B, it puts us back into this whole realm of mystery. And then it's this whole idea, well, it's a mystery and God can do whatever he wants. And then we all just stop thinking about it. So those are my options, except now I have a new option. Basically, the new option is maybe he just doesn't control in the ways we always thought he did control. And open theism for me is an inroad into begin to think this way. That he's not in control, that he doesn't know the future, and therefore he can't stop the future because the future is unknowable. However, he is still with us. And in fact, the whole he's still with us part may be more powerful than the whole controlling part anyhow. Now the connection to LGBTQ plus human beings. So among other things, if God doesn't control, well, he's not controlling biological, sociological, and psychological factors that influence our gender, our sex, and our sexuality. He just doesn't have to have it a certain binary black and white way in order to be happy. Because apparently he's into creation and change and evolution and creativity and diversity. Why? Because he's not controlling. Now, granted, this is both good and bad. Because if he's not controlling, then things can happen like gender dysphoria, or any of a whole range of problems revolving around chromosome complements, hormone balances, or phenotypic variations that may in fact affect the growth of a young person sexually. By the way, I'm not saying that something has to be wrong in order for someone to turn out to be gay. But given that they're real, it's reasonable for people to suggest that Christians can stop all their incessant, almost pathological need to attach to God language of being all-knowing, or all-controlling, this whole image that forces us down one specific, preordained, particular road. Maybe life is way more random than we ever imagined, but maybe it's okay to say that, because maybe love was aware of this at creation. I mean, would you suggest that love wasn't aware of something like quantum physics in the singular moment before the start of the cosmos? Who would dare suggest such a thing? No, no, I think it's more than reasonable to say that if there is a God, then it was aware of randomness, and that everything in life, as I say in my most recent book, is random and uncertain, and it's careening out of control, Swiss-cheesed with irrationality and chaotic paradoxes, and yet at the same time, life is never abandoned. Love precedes everything, celebrates everything, and holds all things together. LGBTQ plus human beings are living, breathing people, children of God who are finding their sexuality to be outside the normal parameters, and yet God loves them. Yes, God loves anomalies. Who among us would dare to suggest otherwise? And if he loves and welcomes anomalies, shouldn't we? And that's how I begin to connect the dots with my random questions about time and space and quantum physics and relativity and open theism. That's how I see it all has to do with the subject matter at hand. That is that God loves all of us, including people who are finding their sexuality to be different than the normal heterosexual expression. So 
So I wanted to say all of that before we got into our conversation with Dr. Tom. And by the way, I'm not saying that he necessarily agrees with everything I just said. You'll have to read him and listen to him to find out more about what he thinks. But I am grateful for his time. And right now, let's get into it. I apologize for the audio quality. Maybe next season, I'll crank up my budget and invest in some better gear. But for now, this is what it is. So let's make it happen. I grew up in a a little farming community in Washington State, a little town called Othello. And um, my father was a school teacher. My mother was kind of an entrepreneurial person uh, in business and ministry. Um, We uh, attended a church in the Nazarene, and so that's what I knew all growing up. That church played a huge role in my family and in my own life. And... um, by the time I was in high school, I, you know, I'd accepted Jesus into my heart multiple times. Mm-hmm. There you go. And, That's uh, how we do very, it. That's yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> very active in the youth group. I went off to college and um, eventually thought maybe I should be a religion major. Um, and while doing that, I was a really, I was a hardcore evangelist. I did a lot of door-to-door street evangelism. I was in Campus Crusade for Christ, etc. Took that really seriously. Mm-hmm. And then my final year of college, I took a course in which, uh, for the first time in my life, I was uh, introduced to really smart atheists and agnostics, mm-hmm. and um, their ideas uh, kind of pulled the rug out of my usual reasons for thinking there was a God. And so uh, for a period of time, I was an atheist. Mm -hmm. I remember picking up my fiance, who's now my wife, and her getting in the car and me saying, you know, I just can't believe in God anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, I was an atheist for not a whole long, long period of time, but I had these deep intuitions about love and meaning. And so Um, I eventually came back to think it was more plausible that there was a God than there wasn't a God Mm -hmm. and um, sought to go into ministry. In fact, I (laughs) I remember um, interviewing for a job and the pastor asked me my view about Jesus. And uh, my theology was really thin at the time, even though I'd had tons of, you know, education. I believe there was a God. I thought Jesus is pretty cool, and that's about it. <laughs> and he wanted me to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God and all these things. And I was just like, you know, I can't do that. So I didn't yeah. get that job. <laughs> it's funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> but I did end up getting another job, and so I was a youth pastor for four years, went on to NTS and got my degree, and then got a PhD from Claremont, um, and, you know, just continued to work at the issues of love mm-hmm. and let those try to shape the way I think about God and, and about Jesus and about who I ought to be and how I ought to treat people, including LGBTQ people. Um, that's kind of my story. When I hear you talk, um, not not only just now, but on the podcast and stuff. I've just really always been struck with the sense of like you 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 don't have you have a a low anxious presence about you, which I really appreciate because it's one thing to be smart, but it's another thing to match that up with you know an energy that actually maybe be, maybe reflects love, and it feels like you do. Is that something that you've had to work on, or yes, <laughs> have, have, have there been specific things that have happened? You know that have then caused you to 
come back afterwards and self-reflect and think, oh, gosh, I need to do that better? Or or am I just yeah, talking I mean, about myself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot of those. You know, I, I mentioned that I was a hardcore evangelist. You know, in yeah. that kind of setting, I came at things believing I had all the answers or at least the most important answers and uh, everybody else was wrong if they didn't agree with me. I had a particular way of reading the Bible that uh, made me think that I had the most important answers. And and so um, I had to change my way of thinking and become much more humble after I realized intellectually that mm-hmm. the answers I thought were, you know, mm-hmm. ironclad and absolutely certain uh, had really strong objections. Mm-hmm. So I think part of part of me is trying to, I'm constantly trying to ask myself, you know, um, is how are you going to act in a way that's humble? Even mm-hmm. if you have strong convictions, even if you think you've got better ideas in some instances than others, uh, you know, how are you going to be able to say this in a way that takes into account that you haven't got it all figured out. You can't even be certain about the things you think are most important. And yeah. so therefore that ought to be reflected in how you interact uh, with others. Isn't it so ironic how you can be talking about love and trying to impress upon people their need to not be so certain about what they believe so that it will open the door to love. But then meanwhile, I'll speak for myself. I can so easily begin to act unloving yeah. in the middle of fighting for all that. It's so ironic. Yeah. I think we all deal with certain levels of insecurity. Yeah. And um, one of the ways we try to cope with that is to think that we have a set of principles and answers to the most important questions that mm-hmm. we can be absolutely certain about. Because it's just uncomfortable when we're, <laughs> we're mm-hmm. not certain, um, at least initially. And so... Some of at least some of what motivates most of us, at least me, is this dealing with uh, the uncertainty of life and um, my lack of security. You know, we say we find our security in God, and of course, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you're not absolutely certain there is a God, then there's still questions of insecurity there. Yeah. And I'm in the camp that says, you know, I'm not absolutely certain there's a God. I, yeah. I think there is. I have faith. I have good reasons. There's evidence. Mm-hmm. I make arguments. But at the end of the day, I can't know with absolute certainty. And so I'm never going to have that kind of security that some people think they have and, and at least are yeah. desperately thinking or searching for. Yeah, or at the very least, you know, I think I would say, I agree, I'm uncertain, or I do believe in a God, but who allows so much uncertainty to exist, that even in, even that, I, I, I agree in that sense, I'm never going to recapture that thing that I used to have, of just yeah. being so confident. And it's it freaks you out, but it also, there's, it's also opened so many really beautiful doors. Yeah, I think so. You know, there are some days when I look back at my former self and <laughs> thought I had everything figured out. There's some days I look back and I'm a little bit envious. You know, that was the certain kind of positive feelings that come from thinking mm-hmm. you're right about things. Mm-hmm. But then I also remember what a jerk I could be, you know, <laughs> and I remember how I made people feel so uncomfortable mm-hmm. and... um 
how I wasn't really promoting bear well-being. What I was really doing is just trying to prove that I had the right answers. And it's not the kind of person I think I want to be. I don't think it's the kind of person Jesus wants me to be. Uh, so I'm sure you have to get a variety of reactions from folks, uh, in particular from the more conservative, constrictive theology. And how how have you... How do you interact with them? How do you help yourself when you're in the middle of that? Um, I know that I have uh, a church full of young people who have a lot of extended friends and family who are really frustrated at them right now for some of the progressive theological journey that they're on. Yeah. Do, you, do you approach that just recognizing that people are generally, you know, they've constructed meaning out of the way that they think, and so now some of the things you're saying uh, is just deconstructing meaning, so it's just going to freak them out? Is it a fear yeah. thing, the theological thing? There are a couple of things that help me, I think, try to deal with folks. One is to remember my former self and to remember mm-hmm. that I once made the kind of comments people make toward me, so mm-hmm. it helps me some. Uh, another is to remember that, um, you know, I haven't got it all figured out. I could be wrong here. And so, you know, maybe they've got something to tell me that will help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes I don't think they do because I've already thought their thoughts, but I'm always want to remain open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes too, I approach people who are, you know, really bashing me as I, I think it's myself. Okay. Here's another possible uh, another um, case for me to use to try to think about how my response might be helpful so kind mm-hmm. of like an experiment like yeah. okay I've heard this one before in the past I've used this strategy to respond yeah. and it's had certain kind of results now what could might be a better strategy here so sometimes I have that approach to it sometimes I just ignore it you know sometimes yeah. I just have to in fact a lot of times I do that other times, it's just because I know that unless I'm probably having a heart-to-heart conversation with the person in person, um, then it's probably not going to be that effective. Well, I again, we don't know each other well. It's just a sense that I get from reading you and listening to you that um, I definitely didn't want to overlook that the sense I get is that you, you've worked on that, and um, and I appreciate that. And um, mm, Thanks. And I'm working on it as well. So, I'll work along with you. That's right. <laughs> so, well, that might be a good transition to maybe introduce um, essential kenosis and maybe explain what that is. Uh, it's been it's been helpful for me, but um, how would you define that, and and how did you land on that? Yeah, I've been wrestling for quite a while with the questions of. Uh, love and power in God. And like mm-hmm. most people, it emerged early in my life when, um, you know, I saw rotten things in the world, in my own life, people dying, people abused, and asked the question that just about everybody asks, you know, if there's a loving and powerful God, then why doesn't this God prevent this? Why doesn't God stop it? Mm-hmm. And um, in our tradition, the Wesleyan one, we have... Uh, a resource that not everybody has, and that is we believe in free will. And that gives us a partial answer to this question, but it doesn't give us a full answer, at least in my view it doesn't, because um, most people think, most people who think that God gives free will also think that God could take that free will away or override it in some kind of way. 
And even if God can't do that, there's also lots of really rotten things that happen, you know, through disease or accidents or, you know, nature kinds of, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes. A lot of pain and suffering comes from um, sources that don't use their free will wrongly. And uh, so all of these kinds of questions have, have prompted me to ask questions about God's love and power. This passage in Philippians that talks about Jesus uh, self-emptying, the word is kadosis in Greek, has it's actually been translated a bunch of different ways, has been a kind of a touchstone for a lot of theologians to wrestle with the question of God's love and power. But what a lot of people have done is they've said, you know, Jesus reveals that God is a God of love, and they say God voluntarily decides not to control others, either to give them free will or to allow the natural processes of nature to run their course. And this answer didn't quite do it for me because it said that God, at least seems to imply that God has the kind of power to prevent it if God wanted to, but God voluntarily self-limits and chooses not to intervene, to use common language. So essential kenosis, which is my view, uh, the technical name for it, says that it's not because God has voluntarily chosen not to control others or intervene. It's that God, God's love is inherently uncontrolling. So it's, mm-hmm. it's God's nature of love that means that God can't stop these horrific evils, even if they're not done by free will choices. Um, and so that's the major claim. It's fairly controversial to many people who first hear it. Mm-hmm. But I think the more people wrestle with it, the more they see its at least fruitfulness. Well, I have found it helpful. I've also wrestled with love and power in God, and it feels like, you know, that's most of my awakening and also maybe subconscious life. Uh, yeah, is yeah. wrestling with that in some way, shape, or form, and just trying to get to better understandings of, well, you know, realizing our misunderstanding of power and how with God it's so upside down and essential kenosis definitely taps into that. And I just, I really appreciate your commitment all the way through. I mean, you're saying all the way down even to a physical and cellular level. Um, I mean, I think this this is the issue that, you know, the the polls have said for some time that the number one reason atheists say they don't believe in God is this particular question. Why, if this God exists and is loving and can do anything, then why doesn't God stop evil? Mm-hmm. But I come to believe, and I don't have any polls to support what I'm about to claim, but um, I've come to believe that this is the number one reason that people who do believe in God, Christians, for instance, this is the number one reason they stop talking about God acting in the world and in their lives. I mean, some people say God does this, that, and the other, but a lot of people... Uh, they realize the severity of this question of evil. Mm-hmm. And instead of making claims that, you know, God healed me or God stopped that car accident or God whatever, they kind of just take all God's action language out of their vocabulary. And they have kind of, they're almost practical atheists, even though they say yeah. they believe in God and they, they want to be good and that sort of thing. They don't have any real uh, language to articulate how God might be acting in the world. And so 
they just kind of become practical atheists and don't invoke God much unless it's kind of a ritual or, you know, they're reading the Bible. Yeah. And uh, my heart goes out to them, too. Essential kenosis is an attempt to try to help those kind of people as well. Yeah, I, um, I hear what you're saying. One of the things I was thinking of is, for me, uh, my old way of looking at it was so much that God was outside in, in my prayer and in everything I did in my life and my actions, my behavior was an attempt in some way to get him to break into, mm-hmm. you know, into this thing. Um, mm-hmm. But as I'm seeing it now is he's already here. He's right. always, he's always been here and we were right. created out of that. And which I think is congruent with, with your essential kenosis in the sense that this is the nature of God. He's not, he yes. is, he's not distant. He's so intimate but that radically changes how you pray and how you think, and he's already emptied himself into our present dimension. Exactly. The kingdom yeah, of God I, is available right now. Right, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I think that's, I mean, next to the view that God is a loving God, the next most important attribute, I think, is God's omnipresence, and God is with us. Yeah. I think John Wesley thought that as well. If you're constantly giving yourself away, if that's the right way to kind of mention essential kenosis, if you're giving yourself away, you're at risk. But if you're at risk, the only reason you're at risk is if you don't know the future outcome. Because if you know the future, then you're really not at risk. Right. So do you have to be an open theist to, to believe what you're proposing? Logically, probably not. But I think that it fits best overall with the kinds of claims I'm making about an interactive God of love who can't control others, who takes risk in relationship. It probably, overall, it makes a whole lot more sense to add the claim that God experiences time like we do. God is both all times. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I suppose we okay. should define, I just threw out open theist there, so yeah, maybe, maybe define what that would be. Yeah, open theism is the view that God is not standing outside of history, outside of time, and looking at everything as as if it's one moment, but rather instead experiences time kind of like we do, sequentially, moment by moment. And if that's true, then the past is past both for us and for God. The future is not yet existing. It's just a realm of possibilities. And so just like we can't know with absolute certainty, you know, what's going to happen 10 years from now, God can't either. Mm-hmm. So uh, open theists like me like to say that God knows everything that is knowable. God is omniscient, to use the classic language. But the future is, does not yet exist, and so it can't be knowable by anyone. But the fundamental commitment there is not what God knows and doesn't know, even though that's usually where the debate is. The fundamental commitment is to whether or not God stands outside of time or experiences time like we do. So, back to your thing about risk. If God stands outside of time, sees all history in one single glance, the future and the past are the same to God, then there's no real risk of love involved because God Mm -hmm. knows exactly how everything's going to play out. Mm -hmm. But if God is experiencing time with us, in relationship with us, then uh, God can't know with absolute certainty the the future. And so there is real risk in uh, relationship. Is it? too simplistic 
to think in terms of theory of relativity and quantum physics? Like, am I correct in saying theory of relativity is more God outside of time, like multiple dimensions and God is, and whereas quantum physics is more, um, well, it just messes with that whole theory to the degree that it brings yeah. it into real time. Yeah, that's right. The theory of relativity, general relativity especially, is based upon mathematical assumptions, and math doesn't require uh, temporal sequences. And so, therefore, I can give us a picture of reality that can be atemporal or non-temporal. Mm-hmm. And if that's the way reality is, it's not fundamentally temporal, and if God exists, then it's going to fit nicer with the idea that God is timeless. Mm-hmm. Quantum theory, by by contrast, is based upon observations about what's going on at particular levels and the lack of certainty that we can know what's going to happen. And therefore, it's taking time more seriously in terms of observation. That fits better with the notion of a God who is experiencing time sequentially. All right. So I was, I'm tracking. I'm going the right direction. That's right. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. Um, and so I have so many questions now in my head about all of that. You know, okay, so one way to take this is to think in terms of, well, what happens at death? And then, you know, I want to ask what happens with the resurrection. Sorry, I'm stumbling to ask this question. But no, no, that's right. I'm trying to think it as I say it. But yeah, according to what you're, what you're saying, the body of Jesus is the cells and molecules. Everything's, ex- it doesn't, well, first of all, the body doesn't just die immediately, right? Right, yeah. I mean, it, well, I would say the body doesn't disappear into nothingness immediately. I mean, it's something is still there, and there's still responsiveness. Yeah. And so God in time is somehow giving opportunity for the body of Jesus then to be reanimated. Again, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm running out of language at that point. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's hard. It's hard to put mm-hmm. any kind of language, no matter what your view of the resurrection is yeah. around this. Um, so I would say, uh, I happen to believe that Jesus has a mind and a body, and there's a particular way I go about this, but I won't go into details at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say Jesus' mind continues to uh, function after his body dies. And, you know, there's a Christian tradition has interesting things that they to talk about with that regard, Jesus going to preach those in, to those in hell mm-hmm. and these kinds mm-hmm. of things. But anyway... That mind would surely want to cooperate with God's resurrection. So that's an important factor to bring into account when we think about the resurrection of Jesus. And then secondly, yes, the body doesn't lose all agency. I mean, we know that from the kinds of resuscitations we see in which people are drowned and are dead and, you know, for hours and hours and they come back to life. Um, those cells had the capacity to cooperate. Now it does make things more difficult in the in the Jesus scenario to think that this guy is crucified, has a spear stabbed in his side. He's got some some limitations there that uh, bodies that drowned in ice cold water don't have. But the basic uh, claim is that Jesus' body still has capacities to respond to God. And in fact, if he lives a sinless life, the mind-body relationship would be even stronger and more influential one way or the other. So there's there's certain things you can bring into account. At the end of the day, I want to say, yep, even the resurrection of Jesus was done by God's non-coercive power. 
Yes, I want to say that too. I'm trying to figure it out, but that's what I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and how we started going down this path was I was just asking questions about God's you know, uh, non-coercive power and his his kenosis and how it then for me um, I don't want to I don't want to use the word force, but it makes me think only in terms of open theism. That is that God. Yeah can't know the future. Yep. Yeah. Which is interesting because, you know, your initial argument, not yours, but I mean, I'll probably, anyone's initial argument is, oh, God has to be stronger. A God who knows the future is stronger than a God who doesn't know the future. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized, actually, I think it's the other way around. Interesting. Because, you know, if, if a God knows the future, he already knows what's going to happen, how difficult... Yeah. I'm, I'm being a little bit flippant with it, but how difficult can that be if he already knows every move you're going to make? But God is experiencing it with you, but is still so creative and so um, interested in everything that's happening and still can use love to, or he is love, he's not using love, you know, love is still working. I find that actually there are ways to think about that that, that um, make, it, make it a stronger kind of God. Yeah, it's an interesting question about what model of God portrays divine power to the greatest extent or has the strongest God, we might. And it's hard for me to figure that one out because, um, you know, I suppose it matters a lot on our intuitions of what strength is. To me, it's, it's, I think I'm like you. I think it's more powerful. Well, let let me do it this way. Who's more powerful? Mother Teresa or the pers- the Olympic weightlifting champion? Yeah. Well, if the question is who can lift the most weights, that's an obvious answer. Mm-hmm. But if the question is who's the most influential overall, Mother Teresa wins hands down. I don't even know the person's name <laughs> of the Olympics. And Mother yeah. Teresa has been massively influential. So, um, yet she's done it through the power of persuasion. She's done it through the power of influence, not coercion or manipulation or brute force. So if we take that argument, then essential kenosis has a much stronger God than the God who predestines or even foreknows the future. That's a really helpful analogy. And I can't help my brain starts to connect dots just because of where I'm at in my life. Yeah, It feels like... Um, whether it was my former denomination, because they're very similar in the way lots of denominations and structures work, that we're all so fascinated with the God of brute strength power. Yeah. Introduce power in any other way that, oh, set within what we're so obsessed with, it just it turns the thing upside down. And, and that kind of power seems like can't handle it, can't yeah. deal with it. How would you say that? I mean, trying to take some of these thoughts of essential kenosis and God giving himself away and the really fascinating power of God's emptying love, but it doesn't, it just falls flat on its face with some of these superstructures. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of us, a lot of us would like to see problems solved quickly and single-handedly. We'd like to see something get done without having to be vulnerable or exert any power or just, you know, we're attracted to the magic snap of your fingers. Boom. It happens. Mm -hmm. 
And we have no explanation except one actor did it. And then we praised that one actor. Well, that model seemed pretty attractive to a lot of people until they run into problems in which you think that one actor would have fixed them. The problem of it being the biggest one, but there's lots of other ones as well. And so then it makes you rethink what you think is the most powerful. And along the way, I think also we ask questions about about our life significance. Do we really matter if God can just single-handedly snap of the finger, fix everything, um, most of us, I think, want our lives to matter, but if God has that kind of power, it's hard to really think that what we do makes a real difference. I guess maybe another way to say it is that traditional view of omnipotence has so many conceptual problems in other areas that it, it's you know led me and others to give up on and to think of a new way of God's power. Yeah, and isn't it fascinating that our tradition has left room for people like you to have enough freedom to think these thoughts, but if you go too far, you know, it just, something breaks. But I find that interesting, too. Like, no, the reason I'm thinking this way is because you gave me the freedom from my Wesleyan and Arminian background to not not always have to make it fit within these things, and now I'm acting on that freedom, and and it just, it doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm... What I'm going to say now, I'm working on articulating well, mm-hmm. but I, I wanted I want to figure well, that's out the a way. story of my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was thinking about this this weekend when I was driving in the mountains of Idaho. I was thinking about why I am such a threat to people in power. Mm. Um, you know, it's I don't think it's just my views. But I think my views do threaten some, mm-hmm. especially my view about what true power is and the power of love and that kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. If you have a really, if you're hardcore and hierarchy that you ought to obey whoever your leader is, then I think that can really come in tension with the issues of love. And then you got this guy who's talking about love all the time. I think some leaders probably intuit a conflict, even if they can't articulate it. And so I'm a threat to them. Uh, But just in general, what I was thinking about as I was driving through the mountains is my wife and I uh, were in Poland for our 30th anniversary last summer. We were going through Auschwitz. I'd been before, but this time I was reading more carefully. Okay, wait a minute. You took your wife to Auschwitz for your anniversary? (laughs) Actually, she picked that spot. Okay, Okay. we went through. Yeah, <laughs> we traveled through about 10 Eastern European countries, and so that okay. was the only place we went. <laughs> anyway, in this in this one particular display, they were talking about the early years of Nazi Germany. And they said uh, the three groups of people who were targeted first by the Nazis were intellectuals, clergy, and artists. And I said to myself, I'm all three of those. And then I asked myself the question, why is it that that three groups of people are such a threat to those in power? And one of the reasons, I think, is because they're not easily tameable. I mean, there's a joke in academia that, you know, leading intellectuals is like herding cats. You know, they all want to do their own thing. So that's part of it. 
And I think with the clergy, we feel like we have to, and rightly so, our allegiance is to a greater power, a greater, you know, purpose, something bigger than the state. So that's, and artists, you know, they're free expression. They are looking for new ways to express the truth or the beauty they see in the world. Anyway, when you think about the authorities that pushed you out or, you know, and asked yourself the question, what was their, yeah. what was their motive? What were their reasons? Um, I, I ask myself that question when people do that to me. And I think a lot of them come back to these questions of, Power, structure, freedom, um, you know, who's in charge ultimately? Can you question authority? Can you question long held beliefs? And I don't, I wish I had all answers and could fix things. Um, yeah. Yeah, me too. But honestly, I'm not, I'm really not complaining. I'm, I'm trying to process it and I'm trying to, uh, you know, learn from it. And I'm, to be honest, I'm quite, I'm really grateful where I'm at and where the church is at. And, and I only want the best for the former tradition. Let's get together, and maybe we could even have you speak at mission, or let's... let's oh, let's, that'd be great. I know. That would be really cool. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot, man. Hey, you're welcome. I enjoyed the conversation, Jonathan. And let me know how I can help you promote what you're doing, and uh, appreciate it. Hopefully all these efforts can help some people. I know. We just want to help people. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. All right, bud. Have a great day. God bless. All right. you. All right, everyone. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks to Dr. Thomas J. Ord. I hope you'll check him out online. You can find more of his information in the show notes, or you can just Google his name. There's lots of stuff out there about what he's writing about and what he's thinking. And thanks for hanging out. I know I've got at least a couple of more episodes in season uno. So I've got a few more things left for you we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. But meanwhile, I hope that uh, you're finding peace and love. You know you got to look for it. It doesn't just happen to you accidentally, man. you got to choose it. So I hope you're choosing it every single day. All right, God bless.